Well, it's good to see you all tonight. Thanks for coming. Um, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And wouldn't you know it, for the first Bible study back on campus, we got probably the hardest part of 1 Corinthians to understand. So hope I do a good job of this. But I guarantee you, I won't tell you exactly what it means, because I don't think anybody alive today uh, knows exactly what this passage means. But let me just start with this before we read uh, the first part of chapter 11. In my opinion, there are four different kinds of arguments that Christians get into. There are basically four levels, you might say. On one, Number one level is there's an issue that's important and the Bible is clear on it. So, for instance, if someone in our church came up to me and said, well, I think there are many ways to get to God, many ways to salvation, I would argue with them and I'd say, no, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is the only way. I would have Scripture on my side. I mean, I would, as much as I like this person, I would have to disagree with them. And if they left the church, I'd say, well, I'm sorry you didn't come around because we can't really worship together if we disagree on this because we're really worshiping different gods if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way when He clearly said that. So that's, that's a level one kind of issue. Level two issue is where the issue is important, but the Bible's not clear. Where it's something that's talked about a lot in Scripture, but people of goodwill who equally believe the Bible's true can read the same information and disagree. So for instance, a good example here is uh, the, the details of the second coming. That's an important issue. Doesn't get much more important than that. But people who love the Lord and love His Word can disagree on that. So that's why I say it's a level two. Another example is the details of what heaven's going to be like. I have my own beliefs. I love that book, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I don't know if he's right or not. We can get there and he's wrong. I guarantee you it won't be worse than what I've imagined. So I'm not worried about it, but we, we can disagree. Those, those are number two level issues. Number three level issues are where the issue is not important and the Bible is unclear. So an example here, and there's lots of them in Scripture. These are issues where something's mentioned one time in the Bible. It's said in such a way that people today don't really know what it means. And, and so we're, we're left with an issue that obviously isn't important enough that it was repeated more than once and we don't really know how to interpret it. So example is in Genesis 6, there's a, there's a story where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men and essentially came and had babies with them. And so some people think that means fallen angels and some people think that means human beings who came from outside the tribe of those who believed in God. And, and you know, you can believe either one and still be a good Christian. That's my point. That's not going to determine your salvation. And then there's number four level. The four level, th this is all my opinion, of course, my, my categories. Level four are where the issue isn't even biblical at all. And honestly, this is where most of our arguments are. This is where you find out somebody's real idols because uh, they're a Christian, they believe in the Scriptures, and yet they get a lot more hot and bothered about these level four issues than they do anything in Scripture. And so, for instance, it comes down to issues of preference. I think we should have this kind of music. No, I think we should have this kind of music. Or I think this translation of the Bible is best. No, I think this translation is best. Or it comes down to issues of culture. I knew of a church where the pastor ended up getting fired because it started because a couple of little ladies in the church saw him in the grocery store with cut off jeans on. 
Now, that wasn't the reason they fired him, but it was the start of the trouble, right? Our pastor shouldn't dress like that in public. That's a cultural thing. There's nothing in Scripture about that. Or politics. You know, the preacher a few weeks ago that said, if you don't vote for this person, you're not a real Christian. Well, that's clearly something you can't defend in Scripture. That's that's an opinion, and yet we argue about those. In fact, I say the trouble in churches happens, a lot of the trouble happens, when we elevate those level two, three, and four issues as if they are at level one. And we say, you better believe this or you're out. That's how churches get split. That's how cults get formed. Uh, You know, you look at at the weird culty movements in Christianity and they all start out as a level four kind of issue where somebody says, well, we're going to be the church where all the men wear beards and, you know, pink hats or whatever. It's, It's silly stuff like that. So I say all of that because, in my opinion, this passage today falls into that level three territory where... It's not something of great importance. Now, don't get me wrong. It's in Scripture, so it's important in that extent. We need to know it. We need to study it. But it's not important in the sense that it's essential to our salvation. If it was, it would come up more than just once in the Bible. That's my personal belief. And it's hard for us to know exactly what Paul's talking about because he's talking about cultural situations that don't exist today. So with all that long explanation and introduction. Let me start with verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and because and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to, not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man." For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For all as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, some will look at this and just say, okay, let's just read this literally. Therefore, and I knew a man in the church where I was youth minister who did. And he said to me one time, men should not have long hair. And I said, well, I don't personally like for men to have long hair either. I don't think it looks good, but I don't know why you're so insistent on that. He said, well, it's in the Bible. I said, well, where? And he pointed me to this passage. And I, I knew this passage. And I looked at his wife who had short hair and never wore a hat to church. And I thought... Okay, I'm not going to argue with you because you're, you're old enough to be my grandpa. I'm a 22-year-old kid. I'm not going to cause trouble. But this is not consistent. You can't, you can't read a passage like this and take part of it literally and the other part just throw it out. And if we did take it absolutely literally, if we said this is a command from God through Paul to be used all time, to the end of time, we would have churches where 
Every woman would have to wear a head covering, and a man was forbidden from it. Women's hair would have to be a certain length. That brings up a question. Who decides what is short and what is long? Paul doesn't specify. Does it mean that a woman's hair should be past her ears, past her shoulder, past her mid-back? Well, it doesn't say. So it would make things very difficult, and it would lead to a lot of legalism and the very kind of uh, exterior morality that the whole New Testament is preaching against. So what does it mean? I, boy, I studied the heck out of this, and I read a lot of different theories, so I'm going to share several with you. One theory is, now obviously, this is about a particular situation that was going on in Corinth. Remember, Paul is writing to a real-life church that was having real problems. And remember, the first seven chapters, he doesn't even deal with any of the problems they mention. He's got his own issues with them, and he brings them up. And then in chapter 8, he starts talking about the problems that they've asked him about. And now he addresses a problem that has to do something with head coverings. So what is it? So the different theories, number one is, well, that it's about the transition from paganism to Christianity. And so this theory says that the pagan priests who were from the upper class used to wear head coverings to distinguish themselves from the working class priests. And so there were men in Corinth who were wearing head coverings to set themselves apart and say, I'm better than you. And that was causing uh, problems in the church and Paul wanted them to quit. So that's one theory. Second theory, it's about the combination of Jews and Gentiles within the church. So this theory says, and this is true, that in Judaism, men covered their heads when they were mourning. You see that in the scriptures. You put dust on your head. Uh, a woman, on the other hand, in Judaism, if a woman unbound her hair and let it fall flowing, you know, let it go without being bound up, that was a sign of shame. She was ashamed of something. She had been caught in a sin or she was personally ashamed. So the theory here goes that the Jewish Christians were going to church and they were noticing these Gentile men would wear hats in the church and women would let their hair hang long and the Je Jewish Christians were offended by this. And so Paul's addressing that. There's a third. Th are you confused yet? Because I got two more. There's, there's a third theory. And that is that it's about the distinction between the genders. And this theory says the problem was there were women in the Corinth church, in the Corinthian church who were starting to dress like men, including the way they wore their hair. And that was offensive because it was blurring those lines between the genders. Well, that would never happen, would it? Number four, fourth theory is that it's about marriage. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, because it's, the, it's one of those modern versions that's very, very literal. I mean, just word for word from the Greek. But you may read, a, maybe the version you're reading, it says man and woman instead of husband and wife. Truth is, in Greek, the words are the same. It's the same word. So the ESV translators made the decision to say, Paul's talking about marriage. And the truth is, when Paul uses those terms, man and woman, he's usually talking about husband and wife. So that's the decision my version of the Bible makes, to assume that it's about marriage. In that, in that theory, the issue was that women wore head coverings as a way of showing they were married. And so if a, a Corinthian Christian woman came to church without that head covering on, it was a way of showing disrespect to her husband. It was dishonoring her head, which is her husband. Um, and, and if you believe that theory, and I think there's a lot to commend that theory, then you kind of got to 
Pair this with Ephesians 5. Remember, Ephesians 5 is where it talks about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives respect and and submit to your husbands. And, And I think you can put those two together and say, in the early church, in the Greek world, there was this idea that Christianity was a threat to marriage, ironically. And the reason why I think that's the case is... You had a world in that time where women were essentially seen as property. If you were a wife, you belonged to your husband. He could do with you as he wished. But then along comes Christianity and says, no, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. All are one. And, and it gives women this new lease on life that they, they have gifts. They have something to bring to the table. They have worth and value, even whether they're married or not. And that, that some in the Greek world found that threatening. And so Paul, both in Ephesians 5 and here in 1 Corinthians 11, is saying, hey, let's not do anything to feed that perception. Let's continue to do these customary things that help everybody see that we value marriage, even though it's not that, even though these customary things aren't essential. We're going to do this for the sake of the witness of the gospel. So that's the fourth theory. By the way, when you get to verse 10 and it says, a woman needs to wear something on her head because of the angels, I've never found anybody that has a a decent, understandable, logical theory on that one. And I've read a bunch. I've read a bunch. One I read was that uh, this was the one I could most easily understand that it's about saying, hey, every time the church of Jesus is gathered together, angels are present, and so women need to act right because you don't want to offend the angels. And I'm sitting there reading that thinking, you know, everything else in your commentary makes a lot of sense, but that doesn't, because if that's the argument Paul's going to make, why doesn't he say Jesus is present? That's a lot more important than the angels are present. I'm not trying to make fun of these scholars who are way smarter than I am. I'm just saying that's how hard it is for us 2,000 years later to completely understand what Paul was trying to say with verse 10. He's obviously saying something he thought the Corinthians would understand, but we don't. And it takes a little humility from all of us to read it and say, okay, I guess I'll find out what that means when I get to heaven, or maybe somebody a whole lot smarter than me is going to show up and figure it out. But until then, well, let's talk about what I am confident of. Maybe you're tired by now of hearing me spout off this theory and that theory. Here's what I am confident of in this passage. Obviously, there were women in the church in Corinth who were coming to worship without veils on. Veils were a traditional aspect of uh, culture in the ancient world. We see them mentioned in various parts of the Bible. And some were coming to worship wearing their hair long. Wouldn't be a big deal today in churches today. In fact, I love the fact that my wife has long hair. But in that culture, it was a problem. For whatever reason, it was seen, those two things were seen as unacceptable. Here's, the way I, here's what I equate it to. If starting next Sunday, I started coming to church in a toga barefoot, don't you laugh, would that be a distraction? Yeah, I think it would. I think no one would hear a word I said. Even, let's say I wasn't the preacher, I was just average churchgoer, and I showed up every week in a toga. That would be all people would talk about. After church, that'd be all they'd remember about that service. It would be a distraction. Now, you couldn't point to anything in the Bible and say, that's wrong, because there's nothing in the Bible that specifically says togas are out. But it would be a distraction. 
even though it would have been perfectly acceptable in the first century. They wore those all the time. And I think that's how we look at this passage. They're talking, I think Paul's talking about customs and traditions and cultural expectations that don't exist today, but were very important in that world. So how do we apply this to our day today? Here's the things Paul says that I think we can apply to us today. Number one, always think about others and the glory of God in everything you do. If you were, if you were watching online as we were studying this, remember the whole wrap-up of three chapters worth, of, in chapters 8 through 10, of Paul answering the question, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Remember what the whole wrap-up is? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Which means, in everything you do, ask yourself, how does this reflect on God? How does this uh, affect my neighbor? How does this uh, show love for my fellow human being and, and my respect for God Himself? So, in this and in everything, we need to understand that as Christians, we are free. We don't live by a restrictive law like the Jews did, where you have all these you have the 613 commands of the Old Testament that are then multiplied with all the different uh, teachings of the rabbis that take those 613 commands and turn them into 10,000 times 10,000 more commands. Well, that's not the way we live. We have freedom in Christ. Can you imagine if we lived that way? Oh, no, it's, it's the Sabbath day. You can't, you can't carry a cell phone. That's, that's, that's too heavy that you're working. Well, we, can't, we don't have to live that way. Right? We have freedom in Christ but our freedom in Christ is constrained by our love for our neighbor and by our reverence for God. So that's point number one. Always think about others and the glory of God in everything you do, even small things. Number two, I think we can infer from this passage, Paul is affirming there is a distinction between men and women. And that's a distinction we should celebrate, not not blur the differences. The, the, God created them in the garden, man and woman, and it was good. He blessed it that way. And so in the church, there's no desire to say, okay, those distinctions don't matter. They do. They're part of God's creation that is beautiful. That's how He made humanity, and we should celebrate it. At the same time, number three, we don't make so much of those distinctions that they become uh, oppressive to either gender. So verses uh, 11 and 12, where it talks about women aren't independent of men and men aren't independent of women. There would be no women if God hadn't made men, uh, if God hadn't made women out of man. And at the same time, there wouldn't be any men if women didn't give birth. And so what Paul's saying in that is that we're mutually dependent. Just because God has made us different and just because we have different skills and different roles does not mean one is superior to the other. And so I think we, we can infer from this, it is always, always, always a disgrace to God when we use these gender distinctions as a means of oppressing. This, is not, this passage is not meant to be a license for men to walk around policing women any more than Galatians 3.28 is a license to say that, well, because it says in Christ there's neither male nor female, then that means gender doesn't exist. Well, that's not the case. And then number four, and I think this is the overall the most important thing Paul's trying to get across, the way we behave in worship matters. It's not, it's not just coming to worship. It's not just showing up. Trust me. I don't know this for a fact, but in my educated opinion, you're not going to get to heaven and see an angel standing there with a clipboard taking roll for every time you went to worship. 
That's not what it's about. It, the, way, <laughs> the way you behave in worship matters. It matters to God and it matters to those with whom you worship. And the reason I think that's the main point Paul's making is chapter 11 is the beginning of four chapters where he talks about the subject of propriety in worship. He's going to talk next about the Lord's Supper and how we celebrate the Lord's Supper and how that matters to him. In chapter 12, he's going to talk about the body of Christ and being part of the body and how we're all important. In chapter 13, he's going to talk about how love uh, should guide everything we do within the body of Christ. I know that you had that read in your wedding, but it's not actually about married love. It's about love within the body of Christ. And then chapter 14 is going to get real interesting when he talks about prophecy versus uh, speaking in tongues and what's most important and how to behave within a worship service with indecency and in order. But the way you behave in worship matters. Now, when I was a small child, I learned this, but it took me a while. My parents would probably deny this. And maybe my memory exaggerates things. But the way I remember it, when I was in elementary school, I got a spanking every Sunday when we got home from church. That's my memory. My memory is you get home from church, and I heard my dad's belt come off of his belt loops, and I thought, okay, here it goes. And I'd get another whipping because I just couldn't be still, and I couldn't be quiet. And it, it was a reminder to me how you act in church matters. Now, I don't think we should beat anybody. Although if you have kids, that's your business. But that drilled into me the concept that my behavior affects others, and that matters. So don't want to get too far ahead. Chapter 14 is going to deal with this in great detail. But when you are in church, remember, yes, you have an audience of one. You are singing to God. You, your prayer is to God. Your offerings are to God. But your behavior in the pew can either enhance or distract the other people around you from encountering God. So keep that in mind. If you're sitting there with your arms folded and with an angry look on your face and refusing to worship, well, that impacts them. It's the same way, same way if you're joyful and, and greeting others and obviously expressing yourself in worship, that inspires them in a different way. So. How you behave in worship matters. It affects others and it matters to God. So let me just close by saying this. Every time we enter God's house, it's an important reminder that what happens in that building is not really about us. It's not for us. We get into the habit of seeing it as a show. And we grade it as a show. And it's not really for us. Enter into God's house and remind yourself of that and say, Lord, help me to keep you and, and everyone around me on my mind throughout this time so that I might glorify you. And that's a good way for all of us to begin.